0: Tiny tiny tadpoles swimming in the water Born in the pine you are water's daughter You don't know it yet but soon you'll grow some legs They will carry you on the journeys ahead your tail will shrink and your gills will go away. You'll wake up and find yourself a frog someday. Hopping across the lily pads and far away, and I promise to be here, hearing what you have to say. Little tadpole swimming in the water. You'll be a frog someday. Hello everybody. I am so excited to start this podcast off today. Today is April 30th, 2022. It is a Saturday. And this is the wrapping up of my portfolio collection. So, of course, my work will continue, but I'm going to be stepping back a bit. I'm going to be continuing to do work. I'm going to be continuing to put out content, but I'm going to be a lot less performative, a lot less strenuous. I've put in a lot of energy into laying my seeds. And sort of put it simply, now it's time to, you know, work, <laughs> work that garden. But today's episode is very special. This is the seventh episode of the Mino Diaries. Um, And the good thing about these episodes is that you can start them off. You know, you could start off the anthology on this episode and you could circle back. Or you could start on this episode and just listen further. And, you know, it, it really is really up to you. And I think it works either way. As always, I encourage you <laughs> to do your self-care things whether that's lighting you a little something up or you drinking some wine or you getting a little buzzed or you sitting down for a nap or in your meditation and i I want i want y'all to always remember that this is meant to be something that you don't just hear it you feel it you listen to it you listen to it on your own time if you're able to listen to this episode and you get through it all in one sitting cool if it take you a year to get through just one episode then that's okay too Um, I just I put out this work first and foremostly for me and I just share it because that's what I like to do and I put a lot of effort in this episode and I'm very proud of it and I was faced with a choice when I was writing it I could have stayed in some toxicity in my spirit and had that manifest in the work or I could choose to let go and have that manifest in the episode accordingly and I did choose the latter so please enjoy this hit me up with feedback if you listen to it and you like it and yeah let's get into it Amino Diaries, Episode 7, Flight of the Hummingbird. Spring and Bulbancha was ushered in by the blossoming of irises, the goldening of misbeliefs, the ripening of mulberries, the broad-leafing of sycamores, and the steady warming of the air. Swallows danced in the sky and dragonflies darted amongst the fluttering of butterflies and pollinating bees. The dominion of winter stillness was thwarted by positive action. It was on a spring morning that Waléla woke from her deep sleep to the sight of the paling sky at the approach of dawn, the mockingbird's unmistakable call gently waking the early rises of Waléla's garden. Waléla had grown still in her spirit, her former agitations, distant memories. She found peace in her niche and the regularity of her routines, grown in her powers and her learning. She was no longer the girl vulnerable to the world as a fallen baby bird from the nest. She was as the tigress, full of strength she did indeed know how to use. She basked in this new understanding of herself, smiling sweetly at her own capacity to just be natural, calm, quiet, and home. She rose from her bed with raised arms stretched and went first to her altar where she lit incense and thanked Jah most high for her many blessings. From there she went to her shower, letting the warm water cause her clean and after she observed herself in the mirror. She was not one to spend linger, to spend time lingering with her reflection, not having the energy to fuss over her appearance. This morning She did let her gaze linger, though, absorbing her bare form, all her curves and dents, her marks and scars. Her hair was in its usual braided array, frizzled since she last weaved the strands. She wondered what she could do to it, curious for a change. She had somewhere to go that night, excited after the fun of the night of Obatala, to venture out again. She went to her wall's house phone and called Katlaha, who answered sleepily. Hello? Kalaha? Girl, you know how early it is? What do you want? I want to get my head done for the concert tonight, she said, and Kalaha's tone was suddenly energized. You want your head done? She said in mock disbelief before she told Valela that she was terribly last minute, but she figured something out and called her pack. A half hour later, Katlaha rang to give her an address and told her the time she needed to get there. That's in 30 minutes, Walayla said, and Kalaha replied, Well, that's what happens when you wait till the morning of. Everybody gonna be at the Golden Lily tonight. You lucky I got you a spot at all. Walayla glanced at her clock, thinking of the fastest way to get where she was going before thanking Katlaha and leaving the house to make it to the address she'd been given. Thankfully, Her destination was in the neighborhood, and she arrived just in time at the front of a two-story house with a wide and open window. Walayla walked up to the porch steps, glancing at the women sitting in a row with their backs to the other side of the glass. She stepped inside, and the door announced her entrance with a bell ring by the swing. She was hit by the smell of hair and spray. The women didn't look up from their magazines as Walayla walked to the front desk and gave the receptionist her name. The receptionist said she was being inspected before leaning forward and asking, Is it true you beat the Cobra Lotus in single combat? Walayla smiled bashfully, nodding that the gossip was true. The receptionist nodded her impression before directing Walayla into the salon, much to the attitude of the woman at front. While Layla stepped into an open space, lined on either side by spinning and rising chairs, sat in front of lit mirrors. As early as it was, it seemed every chair was filled with women, men, and femmes, getting their hair washed, blow-dried, trimmed, flat iron braided, styled, etc. While Layla looked ahead at a woman sitting behind a desk on the far wall, with a neon-like peacock nestled against a bed of green hedge. Walela looked down and saw that the walkway to this desk was a let of thick glass covering a long stream of water and lily pads that Koi fish were swimming up and down the length of. The woman behind the desk leaned forward and fluidly waved Walayla over. Walayla walked over and was instructed to sit in the chair on her side of the desk. The woman in front of her had a beauty-marked face, a smooth afro, and three-toned hazel eyes. She wore a fine fit of golden yellow accentuated by ample jewelry. She was stunning, her beauty like nothing where Layla could discern a comparison to. She recognized her from the night of Obatala. She was sitting before the mighty Oshun. Oshun smiled sweetly, white teeth bright beneath water glossed full lips. It's about time you paid us a visit, Hummingbird, O'Shun said, gesturing to a case of nail polish and encouraging Walayla to pick a color. She chose a lush green, and O'Shun hummed her pleasure, gesturing for Walayla to place her hands flat against the table. It'll be a little while before your stylus is ready for you. Do you mind? O'Shun asked before she grabbed the bottle of polish, and Walayla shook her head not at all. Oshun smiled, wiping Walela's nails with a strong-smelling liquid before she grabbed the polished bottle, shook it, and drew the brush top. She took Walela's hands and her so soft ones and stroked color onto her left pinky, saying, Tell me, what makes today special? I mean, what made you decide that today you wanted our service? Oshun asked, eager to know what stimulated Walela's arrival at her salon. Walayla's well, trials were a steady source of gossip, and yet, after her years in Bobancha, the young woman had never made it to her space. She would not charge Walela for her first styling as an offering to the blessing of being Walela's primary conduit of initiation into this ceremonious rite of passage. I'm not sure, Walela said as Oshun finished her first nail with the solid and smooth coat. I just felt appalled, I guess. Oshun hummed. Hmm. Intuition. You'll do well to follow its lead throughout your life. Walela smiled at her advice and Oshun continued. Is love on your mind. Oshun asked as she moved to Walela's next finger. Walela did her best to will her blush away. Oshun called forward the thoughts which Walela had hardly let herself imagine. Little instincts triggered here and there. It had indeed occurred to her recently, like a secret she didn't know she was keeping, that she was not alone, that she was alone most of the time, and that there were women who maintained a certain type of company and intimacy with partners. She had not consciously initiated her trip to the salon with that in mind, but perhaps it had a bit to do with it, but also she knew there was more. I don't know about love, Curiosity, I guess I'm interested in seeing myself And seeing how other people seem to see me How the world as a whole Responds to my form I like to be beautiful What said And Oshun paused her stroking I won't lie to you And say that physical appearance Doesn't matter Maybe it shouldn't But it does Make a world of difference But know this as you are, Oshun twirled her finger around at Waléla's general form. You are very beautiful, Waléla. Waléla blushed at the love spirit's compliment, and Oshun asked, "What is beauty to you?" Waléla thought on Oshun's question, wondering she found the answer eluded her. She looked at Oshun and shrugged. I think you are very beautiful. Oshun laughed and smiled, shrugging in mock bashfulness. Why, thank you, I do try. But what I mean is, can you give me a definition? Oshun asked, and while Layla shook her head, she simply hadn't thought about it very much. Oshun nodded her understanding and asked with the nail brush just above her left middle finger. Will you hear my perception? Oshun asked. And Walayla obliged her consent. Oshun's eyes took on a subtle seriousness and her tone took weight. Though her form was of a woman, she was first and foremostly spirit, a force of nature, cosmic in the expanse of her wisdom, ancient in age. She sensed the course on Walayla's journey that she knew her words might be of great service in time. She said to the young woman, Physical beauty is nice. It serves us greatly in the springs of our youth. Human beings can wield it to great good or selfish darkness. Tonight, and many nights ahead, you may be seen by men who will tell you, why you are so beautiful. And what they mean is that your face, your body, and their presumption of how they may indulge and use those assets is attractive to them. And vice versa. You may see a physical form which attracts you, and you may say, the being I see is beautiful. The thing about this perception of beauty, though, is that it's subject to a profound fragility. Youth and vitality of the human body is fleeting. It is subject to the laws of nature, the course of time, the context of circumstance. It is unwise to establish bonds based solely on the stimulation of physical attraction. Beauty... True beauty is a matter of the mind and of the spirit. Beauty is practice. Are you following, Walayla? Oshun asked, and Walayla nodded her understanding and eagerness for Oshun's continued speech. Beauty lies in your ability to be fleeting, elusive, enchanting as the hummingbird. Beauty does not beg, it does not sell itself. Beauty allures, it attracts through naturality and fluidity. Beauty is submission to the will of God and fortification against the imposition of any man or woman. Beauty is the security of kindness, even when you do not receive it in return. It is the freedom of forgiveness and serenity in the face of what you cannot control. Beauty is content, it is restful, it is joyous, it is enduring. Beauty is the capacity to love, the vulnerability to be loved, and the humility to accept that everyone and everything loves in a different way with different language. Beauty is learning these things, these languages, being full enough to speak to all. Beauty is fullness in the embrace of Jah Most High, faith in his hold, grace in the wielding of his power. Beauty is reservation and withhold. It is the strength to do what is right in the face of your fears, balanced in your desires. Beauty is love, which is, to me, most summed up by the art of release. To let go as the river releases its fertility through the birth canal of the delta into the vastness of the sea with no insecurity for what is lost, knowing full well that it shall forever be replenished. Beauty is the growing of wide oaks in the southern sun, the mockingbird's song, the painted sky at dusk. Beauty is a feeling, a security in the steps you take in the natural flow through life, smooth like river water, too quick to be waded away from its course, a force of nature not to be subjected or damned by those who might seek to own or poison its commencement. Beauty, Walela, looks like learning your heart thoroughly, not subjecting it to fear or lies and changing it for no one. Oshun reached Walayla's last finger. Promise me, Walela, you will protect your heart. Walayla was captivated by Oshun's words and when she met her eyes, it was so hard to look away. She very barely restrained the tears wanting to flow from her eyes. Walela promised Oshun she would and had her nails dried before Oshun held out her hand to behind Walela. Enjoy your session, she said, and Walayla turned to see a familiar form preparing their station. Dressed in a fit of white, stormed with green and blue crystals and gems, was Omina, the Mino, whose hair had been braided in two long strands at the night of Obatala, was now styled in layers of curls on top their head, caped by a full flow of jet black strands thick past their waist. They were adorned in the signifying jewelry of the Mino. Walayla remembered them from one of their many titles, Ocaliope the water speaker. As Walayla approached though, O'mina did not speak, settling for a kind smile and directing Walayla to sit before handing her a laminated poster covered in illustrations drawn by their self of different styles which she might like to choose from. Omina placed a gentle hand on Walela's shoulder, squeezing it tenderly. Omina's touch was supercharged with energy and sent a pulse through Walela's body. Omina's hands were full of the power of reservation, For they did not touch people often, nor was their own body submitted to the press of most finger. Omina kept herself largely as their speech withheld, comfortable after many trials in silence, communicating as much as possible in the nonverbal. Omina was a mino of rarity; their form not wholly male or female. They were whole spirit identifying within a spectrum of divine femininity, and if asked to choose a gender would say they were simply Mino, or Mino refused to be subject to the conformities of others, aligning with the letter O as identification of their being through the first letter of their name, O because it was whole in its shape and sound, as emblematic of the universe itself as any symbol, the only one which they felt was worthy of their submission, Omina was of House Malani, the League of Mino Healers, a seventh child of Yemaya, and Princess of Ten Thousand Moons. They ran their hands over Walela's braids and set to unraveling them, unfolding the coils of Walela's hair, grown thick, long, and dark over the coursing of her trials. Omina's relationship with her began with their mother, right in the very salon Walela found herself in. Yamaya made a niche in the delta far away from her own through the washing, braiding, pressing, and styling of hair, and she passed on these skills to her child. Omina would sit in proximity to her work, familiar with the tinge of heated hair and the satisfying sound of cutting scissors. The sanctity of hair was established in Omina's youth, not to be touched or cut by ill-intentioned hands, lest it may not grow again. Hell was as the branches of a tree, reaching out to process the world around the body. Kept clean and nurtured, it carried great wisdom. Neglected as the mind, and it harbored trauma. Yamaya used her tools like paintbrushes, her flat iron as a wand, to manifest masterpieces of an ancient art form, an art of mobility and silent speech. Hell was communication, language, the great signifier of nation, tribe, ethnicity. It spoke to your alignment with your mother or your f- father's lineage. It swung sensuality and allure. For Mino, hell was the mantle, the crown, the helm, which marked the ferocity of beauty in battle. When an aspiring Mino initiates their trials, they cut the hair as communication of the submission and humility to job ja most high, and may only grow it out in compliment to trials well past, prioritizing power over physical beauty. To look upon a Mino with a full head of hell was to recognize their skill, prowess, and efficiency in their niche, their ferocity in battle, to stand in immaculate form, uncut by any enemy. Hair and armor went hand in hand, for what was regalia without the crown of that which was not a textile but its flesh? From the Mino's body... This sacred thing, which Walela submitted to Oshun's salon, could not only be could only be trusted to the most skilled and prayerful hands. Omina sat Walela back gently beneath running water and shampooed her curls, rinsing and lathering again before she set to conditioning. Their nails nearly drifting Walela to sleep. Her hair was then moisturized at the scalp and strands, blow dried, trimmed, and pressed like silk into dark sheen down Walayla's back. Omina then proceeded to style her strands according to the picture Walayla had chosen. And at completion, Omina took an edging brush, coated in gel, and swirled circles at Walayla's hairline. When they were done, they turned Walayla in the chest so she could see herself in the mirror. Waléla smiled at Omina's work, and Omina smiled pride. When their session was finished, Hosun sent Walayla off with wishes of spring blessings. Walela dressed in her usual comfortability, a loose t-shirt and baggy pants accentuated by her light jewelry. She ventured to the golden lily where a line was out the door, mantled by a lit-up sign of the venue's name. She stood in line, paid her way in and entered the space which embraced her with the pulse of bass in the haze of smoke streamed by dancing light streams. Diamonds of light reflected in movement across the space from a spinning disco ball at the ceiling, and Walila glanced at an empty lit stage where the crowd was steadily gathering. She'd followed Katlaha's advice, not arriving until over two hours past the start of the event. She looked around at the array of fashion and form, The simplicity of her style rendered singular in the array of the space. She heard her name called from the right and turned to see Katlaha waving her over to the bar. Walela made her way through the crowd to where Katlaha leaned back against the bar's edge on her elbows. She was dressed in a periwinkle sheer dress, her chest, arms, and legs showing. Her aunt necklace and armband added depth to the look. Katlaha looked over Walayla and laughed, shaking her head at Walayla's fit. Not because she didn't like it, but because Walayla's choice of fashion was steadfast. Walayla liked to be covered. Katlaha liked to flash her curves, the glow of her skin. Next to Kalaha were an assembly of other Mino, all dressed comfortably in breathable dresses in two pieces. One of them was Omina, who had changed from their fit earlier into a set of swirling white and indigo, their stomach bare. They smiled at Walela before Katlaha turned around to order her a drink, handing it to her with instruction to sip. That's a double. So sip it. It should keep you loose but on your feet, Katlaha instructed before pointing her finger. And don't sit that down nowhere. You sit it down and lose track of it, just leave it and I'll buy you another one. Me. Don't accept no drinks from strangers. Clear. Katlaha asked. And Walela gave her a thumbs up as she sipped a strong drink that burned a little bit, going down, turning her face. Omina and Kalaha laughed before Kalaha said, Baby, slow down. That's whiskey, not sweet tea. Walela blushed before slipping slower. She looked around, stimulated by the lights all around as Omina lifted some herb to their lighter, inhaling the smoke and releasing it into the already hazy air. They offered some to Walela, and she inhaled it a little too courageously and was thrust into coughing to regain her breath. She felt a pat on her back then, followed by the humor of a deep voice. Please don't tell me you're out here corrupting my girl. Walayla turned to her right to see whose hand was pressed against her back as he spoke to Kalaha and Omina. It was Danahi standing tall in a black shirt and cargo camel pants. He'd shown up with a group of other shuja who greeted the mino in return. Did not he glance at Walela with a smile before Katlaha spoke and drew his attention back. A little hit ain't gon' hurt her, especially not with that thing they smoke, straight from them mountains on the Music Island. Katlaha said and the night he lifted his brows and pursed his mustache lips in intrigue before retreat reaching for the herb which Walela handed over, watching as his lips wrapped around it, and he drew it into himself, holding it deep before inhaling the opaque gas. He knew Walela was watching and saved face as long as he could before he started coughing too, sending everyone into a fit of laughter. When he caught his breath, he smiled his laughter too. And Walayla smiled up at the youthful glow of his face when he did so. The Nahi's energy was old. The way he spoke, the way he walked, he was of the blood of chiefs on both sides of his lineage, and it radiated from his eyes. But in being Kalaha's twin brother, Walayla knew him to not be more than a few years older than her. Omina noticed the way Walayla looked at the Nahi and smiled to herself, seeing as Walayla didn't. That when her eyes drifted away, the Nahi's eyes found her too. Omina was pleased that Walayla was safe in this space, that Kalaha and them were there to watch over her. Walela asked Omina, Who's performing? Kalaha laughed. Only you, Walayla, will come to a concert and never even check who the headliner gonna be. As if on cue, there was a general shift of attention to the stage. Walela turned as well and was pulled by the hand by Katlaha closer to the edge of the stage where a group of musicians settled over the instrument and mic set. Walayla looked up at the drummer and the basses and found she recognized them. From so long ago, she was surprised to remember them. Her mouth opened in pleasant surprise as the lead singer of the band stepped onto the stage, wearing a sleeve-cut tie-dye shirt and worn jeans, Long locks trailing down his form, a green, black, and red guitar strung over his shoulder. She spoke his name surprisedly into the air. Nesta. At the utterance of his name, Omina glanced at her coolly before turning back to the stage. Walela doubted he could see her in the mass of the shadow of crowd, breathing smoke like a many headed dragon. She looked up at him, still finding it true that he was among the most beautiful men, human beings, period, that she'd ever seen. He looked largely the same as he had. He wore a chain emblem with a roaring golden lion with emerald eyes. He approached the mic, wrapped his right hand around it, and stood for a moment as the crowd cheered their volume.
1: Dramatically,
0: he spoke. Hey, everybody. He introduced his band name, The Fajamos High. speaking his band members' names. For those of you who don't know, my name is Nesta, and it's my pleasure to be performing for you tonight. Nesta kept his introduction simple, stepping back slightly to drum a few notes from his guitar. The sound felt like it was fit to Walayla's spirit. Her heart quickened in pace as Nesta continued his strumming and his band members commenced in their participation. The sounds emanating from the band's instruments filled with Walayla, filled Walayla with visions of lushness, of mountains and coastal waves. She sensed the frequency of the motherland, the sadness of the displaced, the evolution of those who made home of where they found themselves. She felt her heart steady and quicken at once, her body vibrating, her muscles lax, as if it was grown in compliment to the sounds, while Leila felt her body take on the impact of what she was steadily smoking with Omina, whose eyes hadn't left the stage. Nesta sang beautiful songs, songs that demanded focus, stimulated rhythm, songs as much divine for their words as their instrumental complexity. This was not a rowdy concert. It was easy, calm, swaying. Well, body moved in an almost subconscious rhythm and she found her hips doing things she didn't know they could, her hands guiding her sacral and positive cycle. She grazed her body with her own hands and discovered the joy of musical intimacy. So stimulated by Nesta's songs, she was absent-minded to the glances of the nahi, curious to see Wellayla move in ways she hadn't known she could. She was fluid, natural, beautiful, not simply for the shape of her features but for the rest in her expression and trance movements of her body. Waléla enjoyed the cover of the Shuja and Hamino sisters, not focused on any one of them, but at ease in their proximity. She knew herself to be safe with them and she danced this new freedom. Nesta's songs coursed until he reached a pause in his performance. He took a moment, like he was in deep thought as he scanned the crowd before looking in Walela's direction. She thought for a nervous second that he was looking at her, but realized he was meeting Omina's gaze very briefly, just long enough for those who know how to see, to notice. He put his mouth an inch from the mic and spoke. You know how you have friends? You don't remember the first time you met. You only process that one minute they weren't there and the next they were. That's this next song for me. I think it might have come to me in a dream, but I honestly don't remember. I just know that one day I started singing and I haven't stopped singing it since. It's about somebody, everybody, nobody, and myself all at once. I hope it leave you with some satisfaction tonight. Once again, Nesta's guitar set to strumming. The drums thumped and the bass thrummed. He started to sing a song, soft in tone, heavy in bass, that stimulated Walela's swinging further. His words were profound, telling a story of melancholy and bittersweet love. Nesta sang about loving someone enough to let them go. At the conclusion of the song, Walayla opened her eyes from her dancing trance to see Omina. Silent as stone, and Katlaha with an inconspicuous hand placed at the small of her back, rubbing tenderly. Omina's face was absolutely serene, but the tears were just flowing, rolling down. Walela didn't make a scene out of what she noticed, but she did manifest the courage to still her swaying, reaching to gently graze Omina's hand, letting her palm rest against theirs. To Walayla's surprise, Omina squeezed and held her hand back. No one spoke of Omina's tears, strung out by Nesta's song. Friday morning, Walayla woke to her stomach gurgling. She'd been fasting across the course of Lent and had still been maintaining all her workouts and trainings carried over from the house of Cobra. She rose from bed, got dressed, and headed to her local market where she bought it and traded for her ingredients, while Layla loved the market for its vibrancy and life. She got whole peas, elbow pasta, cream, milk, eggs, cheese, fish fry, and fresh-caught whole speckled trout. She got home and sat right away to her potting, panning, layering, boiling, heating, burning, turning, twirling, pouring, shucking, slicing, cutting, breaking, peeling, popping, dropping, and baking, and frying, and completing this linting meal. She had just placed her pan of macaroni on the counter when there was a ring at her door. She wondered who it could be before, remembering she'd left the fish cooking in grease. She turned back around and attended it. They rang again. And Walayla called out once more that she'd come in a second, looking down at the grease, watching the fish that was almost there. It's Danahi. The Walayla heard a voice call from the front. Did he seriously not hit her? Wasn't that something wolves were supposed to be good at? Her heart nearly beat out of her chest. She didn't bother answering until finally her fish was just right. She took the fish out the grease, turned off the stove, and was racing to the door. She opened it to see... He wasn't there. She looked down at her steps, not seeing him near. She'd taken too long. She peeked out and felt a sliver of hope at seeing him across the street just about to get in his car. Did he, she called out and he turned back. Man, I was sure about to call my sister and tell her about herself for saying you was home or you wasn't. <laughs> no, I'm home. I just couldn't get to the door fast enough. What you needed to see me for, she asked, figuring he had some message from his sister to give her. Well, I didn't need to see you. I wanted to see you, The Nahi said, keying his car doors locked and walking back across the street to climb Walayla's front steps. Why? Walayla asked, not rudely, but genuinely curious. The Nahi reached near the top of the steps. For a brief moment as he passed, he was eye-level with Walayla before stepping to rise over. He looked at her and smiled. I gotta have a reason. He asked, and Walayla blushed at her processing of the flirtation. She turned her face so he wouldn't see before turning back to his warm eyes. I guess not, she said. Before the night he said he forgot something. Went back down to his car and took out a brown paper bag, bringing it back and handing it to Walayla. She took, eyes widening at how heavy it was. She glanced inside the bag and she smiled, meeting Danahi's expectant eyes briefly before she looked back down and took out the flowering orchid plant situated in a pot with hummingbirds painted on them. little cousin in a pottery and stuff. I got her to make you this. Figured you could add it to your garden, he said. while well, Layla gushed because, oh my God, no way this boy, this man, had known to bring her favorite flower. How did you know, she asked, and he was honest. I asked Cleopatra. She said you have them all over your house. Well, Leila nodded. It was true. Orchids were sacred to her. Every time she was gifted one, she processed it as an extension of the person who gave it. Orchids were whole plants and required very little effort beyond space and attention to memory, care if their independence wavers, and just enough water with ample sun. She would from then forever register Denahi in her mind with this first lasting impression. She thanked him and asked if he was hungry, and he smiled. Yeah, that's why I came to I knew you was frying fish. Well Layla opened her mouth in mock surprise before laughing and turning to lead him through her front corridor. He closed the door behind him, taking his shoes off an instruction he registered the soft padding and sway of Waléla's march down the hall to the kitchen, where she told him he could sit. She'd opened her windows, and the mellow breeze blew her curtains softly. The melodies of her many songbirds heard from her garden. he was hit with the smell of Waléla's food, fresh and steaming. The aroma made his eyes heavy and his always tense shoulders lax. He registered the presence of Waléla's altar. Danahi smiled because he thought her house was cute. For her, this house was temple, kept and fortified through much work and dedication. Danahi's second sensation was a feeling of clean, lightness, and cleared space. He swore her kitchen was brighter than all the other rooms in her house. While Layla was not done up like she'd been at Nesta's concert, her hair was back in braids, covered by a bandana, as she prepared the Nahi's plate, gracing him with the sharing of a meal she hadn't planned to. She put his plate down in front of him and poured him some mint tea from her fridge before she made her own plate and sat. The Nahi looked at her most natural face after only that quick moment to set the plates. She'd entered the trance of her power's execution. It wasn't until she caught Denahi looking that her face tensed again with her quiet nervousness. She prayed over their food and encouraged him to go ahead and eat. He tried the fish first, speckled trout versus catfish. The meat was snow white and clean. It was the fried fish one had to mine the bones in. He tried a piece with the skin crisp on it and his blood got warm. He felt the lax from his chest into his shoulders and the feeling of being caught by soft hands before the energy returned, like a firm embrace from softer hands. Valela asked if he was okay, because he'd been staring at his plate without moving for nearly a solid minute. He looked up at her because he'd heard through passing community gossip that her food carried the power to transmute emotions and sensations, but he didn't imagine it to be true to such an intensity. He looked at Walayla, then at her hands. You have a gift, he said, and Walela warmed in her chest, thanking him, proud that he was positively stimulated by something she'd made with her hands and her time. A gift for a gift, she said, gesturing from the orchid she'd sat on the counter to their plates. From that day on, Danahi returned more often to pick up breakfast or lunch from Walayla and reciprocation denahi picked up her groceries for her sometimes he bought them on these days he'd arrive at her door like a postman delivering the mail he never asked for thanks but she loved to thank him he appreciated her thanks with your welcomes he was good with his hands and could fix many things well and sometimes they had denahi fix this and i'll feed you days the truth was denahi would have went even if there wasn't food And Walayla would have cooked for him even if he couldn't fix anything. The truth shown rather than spoken to both of them was they both wanted to be in each other's company and would come up with just about any excuse to fit their visits into their day's schedules. He and Walayla would sit on her porch sometimes for no reason other than to sit, smoke, maybe. She'd read books and he'd just rest. He'd go into this semi-sleep sitting up and while Layla only wondered what the shapeshifter's nightlife looked like among the other largely older Shuja. She would still glance at the peace and youth of his resting face. Other days they'd walk long and far to the bayou, to the park, to the market, usually wherever where Layla wanted to go, unless then he did think of something that was more interesting than what he'd come up with, than what she'd come up with. Walayla was largely quiet, where he could talk about all kinds of things, from here to there, his topics swirled, and even though Walayla had a hard time keeping up, she was gentle in her listening, and still very largely intrigued, not even all the time, by what he was saying as much as the sound of his voice. She loved the way this man spoke, her most favorite quality shared to her. He spoke and she felt it in her chest, across her skin. She thought to herself, if she could, she would bottle his voice into a seashell, put it to her ear and listen to it as the seas. He loved her voice, not for any verbal cadence he could describe, but for the infrequency of it. She did not talk so often, and when she did, it always was to say something meaningful. While Layla liked the way he spoke her name, Walela. He liked his name off her lips. Denahi. Denahi's visits steadily lost their need to center around food as he'd stop by sometimes short, sometimes long. Walela was always busy so it didn't really faze her if he came while she was working or once in two weeks. She was good at not searching for him, going through enough by then to be good at focusing her mind off anxiety and pining some weeks she saw him so much he started to annoy her a little bit and he would sense that and back off until she reached out he was always flattered by the reach outs. good to know he was remembered and thought about with ease and consistency they sat one day on her porch swing and she felt the press of the nahi's leg against her own knee pressing purposefully but also not bothering to move their legs apart This small contact was the initiation of the familiarity of their bodies. From there, their shoulders pressed, their hands grazed, her eyes wandered, his lingered. She squeezed his body at arrival and departure tight. He held her long and sure. She leaned against him and he shifted for her comfortability. She pressed and ran her fingers down his arm in admiration of his tattoos. He grazed the nape of her neck with his thumb. He braided her hair. She massaged his scalp in her lap. They spoke kindness to each other, soft, always on their toes for each other, neither daring to grow neglectful so as to dim their fire and excitement. He didn't waste time with with the most basic of flatteries about how she looked. He told her how she made him feel, how she smelled good, how her house looked nice, her plants were growing well. She wanted always to seek the look on his face every time she cooked for him and they documented his body's different reactions to her various recipes. The day came when the Danahi called her wall phone and asked, Can we go out tomorrow? Go where? Walayla well, asked, dusting flour off her hands with the phone pinched at her neck. Danai answered. I wanted it to be a surprise, he said, and Walayla looked mischievously at her ceiling before a thought occurred to her. You're not going to be like Kalaha and make me put on a dress with heels, are you? She's asked, and he laughed, insisting that tomorrow was a day for her to dress any way she wanted. She declared their date scheduled then and went to bed with caterpillars in her stomach, waking up to the fluttering of butterflies. Bastet just looked at her as she rose with the dawn, glowing with an aura only the cat could see clearly. When Denai got to her, they both looked like they'd been cut from the same catalog, her clothes complementing his. The differences of their shape rendered the styles totally different, though. He took her that day to the swamp trails in the planetarium. Another day to the skate park, and the aquarium, bike riding, kayaking. They did fun things together that left them always eager to see each other again. Walayla had never had fun quite the way she did with Denahi. The ease of it, the comfort of companionship, the safety of his solid form in front, beside, or behind hers. Denahi loved that he could be out with Walayla and she didn't need to hang on to him. She could move around the space and really engage it. Walayla lived with elevated proficiency, knowing the Nahi was always just a holler away. Their relationship blossomed like the orchid, without register of when it went from bulb to full plateau spread. The Nahi and Malela became intertwined, locked, and joined through their intimacies and shared space. Their communication expanded to such a profound degree they could sense each other far ahead of meeting. They called at the same time. The Nahi arrived at her heart's call. Wale well, sought him out when he wondered. She felt the Nahi in all those best ways one can feel somebody. They did not need to waste time with secrets when they had only time for actions which always spoke louder than words. Walela well, found her pains muted excuse me. Huh? Walela well, found her pains muted, purged in his embrace. He felt his muscles soothe at her table. She burned incense and he brought the herb. She would kiss his cheek silently. He would press his lips into her neck boldly. Their affection rose from hesitant touches to the risen temperature of desires collide. There were times when the Nahi looked at her and she felt a fire. When she touched him, he shivered cool. She was the blazing sun and he the moon in orbit. While well, Layla, after ample reciprocation and establishment of respect and trust, shared her mind, body, and soul with the Nahi and was grateful that it was with him her courage manifested for. After this, Denahi became more devoted to her and she had to ask him for space. The truth was, she longed for him too, but knew from Oshun that she shouldn't give so much of herself all the time. While Layla let things build up, his offerings, her skill in applying those offerings to the building of more, Denahi brought her groceries, she made the meals. Walela well, found that fasting made them both quicken for each other, and Walayla well, began to enjoy their games of court and keeping the Nahi on his toes and she at union with her wit. She did indeed love to outwit him, like a fox. Walela well, captivated the Nahi's curiosity in everything she did and said, he was wrapped up in her. It occurred to him one day that he'd never felt anything like what he was feeling with her before. They spent much time together that spring, and their romance deepened into the human cicada-thrumped course of summer. While Layla's senses were naturally dulled by months-long love, which still pulsed fresh with vitality and stamina, she had fallen short of a number of her responsibilities. Not enough to ruin her, but enough for her friends in high and low places to feel the need to steer her direction. Walela was summoned by Dove Note to the mansion of Cleopatra, where the Mino had her come to her altar at the greenhouse. Cleopatra had Walela sit as last time as she recited her hail Marys. When she finished, she looked at Walela, still beaming with the glow of youthful love. She was not disappointed. Walela had chosen well, he was worthy of her, and she of him. No chaos among the ancestors for their alignment. Cleopatra was concerned, though, but was sure to look Walayla over without alarm. "'The birds tell of your bud-' I'm sorry, y'all. "'The birds tell of your budding union with my godson,' Cleopatra said, and Walayla nodded a little cautiously, because she hadn't necessarily hid the night, but she never talked about him with anybody, either. Cleopatra waved away her nerves. "'I don't have no problem with it. You're both grown, and it's your business.' I'm only curious to know if you are as intentional in your preparations for Minohood as you always Denahi. This is, after all, the working season as well as coupling. Cleopatra awaited Walela's answer and she considered how she'd kept up her normal tasks for months. She realized on her own what that also meant. She was budding with Denahi but stagnant in her personal development. Her eyes gave Cleopatra her answer and the Mino said, Companionship is important. I don't mean to take you from it, but I must always remind you of the vast options available for spending your time in these seasons. Here, Cleopatra said, extending a card from her wrist with an M with a halo over it. The other side read, Angels, Seamstress Services. Waléla well, took the card. Maybe spend more time here than daydreaming, Cleopatra said playfully, and Waléla laughed on her way out. She did end up visiting the shop, going up the steps and through the door into an array of fabrics, sewing supplies, beads, stones, crystals, and dyes. Fashion pieces and fabrics were placed over mannequin figures and shelves and tables layered with textiles and open books of various photographs and illustrations. There was a young woman sewing and attending the shop who asked for Layla's name before directing her back to a door etched with the image of a winged warrior. Well, Layla knocked to no answer and heard the attendant call back for her to step right in. Walela well, turned and opened the door to a wall of light filling up the entryway, not able to see what was on the other side of the white luminescence. She wasn't expecting to find a portal through the ordinary-looking door, but she was used to these things by then. She stepped through and found vastly contrasted space on the other side. Well, Layla gasped at the expanse of what could have only been by magic. On two walls spanned in rows rows of nooks, each containing fits of armor splayed across the forms of mannequins. Layla's eyes went wide with intrigue as she looked over what must have been hundreds of Mino uniforms, each unique in shape, color, textile, pattern, etc. Her eyes caught sight of a fit of what looked like buckskin, tasseled and beaded with accessories of bone and turquoise. The suit of armor was protected by glass and adorned at its base by eagle feathers, bison horns, wolf pelts, and a beaded tomahawk. Walela read the plaque etched into the base of the case. Little Moon, a battle of the white bison meadow. Walela was so caught up in the suits of armor she didn't register that she wasn't alone in the space. Her attention was drawn ahead by the sound of a keyboard clicking. She walked ahead and down a walkway toward a desk centered by the rays of a skylight above, shining down on the individual typing on a laptop at the desk. Walayla went to stand there just before her announcing her arrival. The woman came out of her own trance of documentation and looked up at Walayla. Hello, she said. I'm Walayla. The woman's brows, the woman's brown eyes looked her over. Cleopatra told me you'd be by soon, she said, typing something before putting her laptop to sleep, closing it. When she spoke, her voice echoed with the vast space. What do you think, she asked, gesturing to the collection of Mino regalia. They're phenomenal, Walila said, and the woman affirmed. Mino armor from across time and space. For all I've collected, there are still many pieces which elude me. She stood from her desk and walked over to another suit of armor in a glass case, this one made in the image of a honeybee in its black and yellow patterns. Each piece is practical in its functions, but also divinely layered in the context of their conceptions, their journeys. Amino's armor is a story, telling the external about its wearers so words need not be wasted, while Layla looked down at the plaque. Princess Oyin, Shuja and Mino Wars, Battle of Kovango. The Shuja and Mino were enemies? Valela well, asked and the woman replied. They still are in some places. Princess Oyin was instrumental in the climax of the last terrible cl- conflict. She pointed to various layers of the armor suit which conveyed thorough communication to those with enough insight to discern various symbols, the shape of armor, the textiles embedded throughout. By the end of the woman's short lecture across the field of the suit, Walela had learned that Princess Oyen was the daughter of Amino Chiefess, whose ethnicity was rooted in the central-west coastal region of the motherland, and through gifts passed down through her father's lineage, she made her living as a beekeeper. These are all just the independent variables. What is to be known next is the vastness of this suit's journey across time and space laid over Yin's as a second skin. There are many stories to be collected from those who lived in her time and witnessed her, perhaps not knowing her name but remembering her certainly by the uniqueness of her attire. When Amino steps onto the battlefield of war, or just life in general, she does so in her most natural state. The embrace of her armor suited profoundly to her physical form in union with her metaphysical taste. The Mino stopped herself. She was tall and long-limbed, dark-skinned and brown-eyed with finger waves. She was dressed in light blue and white. She said, I'm so rude sometimes, nodding her head and proclaiming from Ja before giving Walayla her title. Title and not name, because her true name was an ancient one which she did not often share. She introduced herself simply as Angel. Angel went on describing the focus of her work in ethnographic documentation and how she balanced much of her learning through the medium of fashion with a particular passion for the dressing practices of her own order. She asked Walela if she was ready to manifest her own suit. Walela looked at the array of pieces around them and thought it an intense task to take on with barely any knowledge in creating such a masterwork while nodded her interest, though, and Angel smiled, guiding her back to the portal door she'd come through. Good. Come back tomorrow and we can start the next era of your learning, she said. And what Layla faltered, remembering something. Is everything okay, Angel asked. And what Layla thought better of what she was about to say and nodded yes, promising to return the next day. When she got home, she called the Nahi who answered the phone excited for their weekend date. She told him that she had to cancel, and though he was a little disappointed, he understood. While Layla went back to Angel, where she was started off with various books on textiles and fabrics such as indigo, yarn, silk, and cotton, learning their origins, histories, usages, and union with this studying was her rudimentary tutoring in sewing, weaving, threading, and beading. From there, she learned about dyes, clothes, fabrics, and prints, and was assigned various books to analyze, filled with illustrations and photographs from across cultures of fashion, from everyday life to ceremonial regalia. Angel encouraged Valela to flow to what attracted her. Mind the shapes and colors that stimulate you, the symbols and the context. Your intuition is a direct link to your ancestors and past lives, and what you most naturally gravitate to is where you may find your truths. Leila well, did, as angels said, harvesting a vast collection of knowledge through fashion into her subconscious of those ethnicities whose influence she found most present in the cultural realities of her native Bourbantia. She did not have access to specifics, but her knowledge of the general allowed her to at least piece a puzzle to aspects of her identity which were commonalities." She began to sketch her own form, dressed in drafts of a potential suit. And this time, the Nahi searched for her. She could give him sometimes, and other times not. She found when she did seek him, he was busy with his responsibilities as a Shuja and chief's son. When they did come together, they dove into each other, trying to absorb as much as they could before having to break apart again. While well, Layla did her best, though the pull of her rising proficiency in manifesting her armor was strong. She was stimulated to a high degree by the process, which took all her knowledge and skill and seemed to balance it into a single vessel of execution. She felt primed and entombed every time she picked up a needle and thread. She eventually started physically making her suit, cutting out and measuring fabrics in her own home, her kitchen becoming a studio. Then, he stopped by one day hoping to share a meal with Walayla, but he found her bent over her sewing on the floor, wrapped up in the steady progression of her suit's manifestation. Nothing cooked. He sat at her table and watched her. She said hey to him, but was largely tranced by her work. He thought she looked tired. Walayla, hmm, she sounded as she pulled her needle in focus. I need to talk to you, he said. We talk all the time, she replied absent-mindedly, and he pressed for her attention. Well, Layla, yeah, I'm here. Tonight, what's going on, she asked, looking up at him finally. He met her eyes, and she met his. It occurred to her that maybe she was due for a break. She placed down her needle and thread, stood and walked over, lifting herself up on the edge of her table to sit close to him. She thumbed the lint out of his hair, and he said... What do you want, Walela? She was a little confused by the question. I mean, what do you want from me? Danahi asked. And Walela thought it was a weird question. She couldn't think of an answer. She hadn't been dissatisfied with what he naturally provided. At the very least, she was always stimulated by his presence. I'm happy, Danahi, Walela said, shrugging and questioned because she did not know what to say. Perhaps that's what he was looking to hear. She asked him, I want you to be happy too. Are you, she asked, and then Nahi looked from her to the suit. They had been wrapped up in each other for a long while, but only now that Walayla was pouring so much of herself into this work, was it dawning on him that she was very near her initiation into minohood. She was prioritizing the completion of her journey and trials, which was understood. But still, he was confused by the void of her absence. You get in more distant by the week. We keep missing each other. I'm carving out time to see you, but I don't be feeling like you're doing the same. It don't really feel like you need me. The night he said, half expecting her to assure that she did indeed need him. Like he was fearing her spirit needed like he was fearing his spirit needed her, like eff a breath. While Layla raised her brows, thinking on his words. She felt deeply for Danae. She desired his mind, body, and soul to be near. She enjoyed his company, but she did not know that she needed him, and found it hard to proclaim a false surety. He looked away from her silence. I imagine us, Walaila, building up home, filling that home with things that's for both of us. The night he laughed to himself, I can't go to sleep without imagining our kids and whose face they're gonna have between us. He said. Walaila stiffened. She had no idea. The night he contemplated on such investment, it seemed he asked her what she wanted from him because he was decided on what he hoped for from her. Then night he continued. It sounds cliche, but I could really see us sitting on a porch, old and holding hands, and I can't get the image out of my head. Lately, it feels like you slipping away to and The more distance you get, the more pressure I feel to build the bridge to your heart. So what I imagine remains a possibility, but with Layla, I can't tell where your head is at. While Layla breathed in, nervous at his words, she got up from the table and walked across the room to stand before her altar, thinking. She felt the energy of walking on eggshells. She could not just say anything here. Danahi needed her tenderness. I can't say I think that far ahead, Danahi. Most days I'm just here, and then, on special days, you're here with me, and I like. I love that, I love you, she said, the words coming out naturally. They weren't a big deal to her, but for the Nahi, they were felt in his chest. Walayla turned and met his gaze from across the room. I'm asking you to think now. Think about what you want with me, Nahi said as gently as he could. Walayla was go with the flow, a leaf in the wind. She was good at living in the present. Her sense of control was muted. She'd found care job most ties and breaks, and was secure enough in that to not peer so much into the future. Denahi, on the other hand, was a planner. He was full of the imagination built up like stargazing his own life, wondering always what he would be, how strong his children would be. Would he become chief like his father? Would he make his bloodlines proud? Would he leave a legacy? All these questions were hard for him to imagine without the security of partnership with a woman. He'd had girlfriends before, fleeing here and there with minimal satisfaction or stimulation. With Walayla, everything was different. Everything felt whole. But Walayla was her own person, subject to the calls of her own heart, expanding every day with the spirit of adventure and the actual power to embark. A power was of such magnitude she could not process being within herself. Denahi was the only one who truly felt the course of her strength merged with his own. That strength in her was why he loved her, but it also made him scared to lose her. His mind craved reassurance that she would never leave him behind, that she would, no matter the course of her meanerhood, prioritize their love beyond all else but he felt the pit in his stomach, sensing that though he was willing to turn his back on everything he had for her, Walayla's spirit had not considered for a moment turning away from everything she had to gain for him. He felt low and Walayla could see it all in his eyes and she wanted so badly to fix it. I see myself flying. Walayla said, speaking in spirit to her most genuine capacity. I see myself racing like the wind to wherever life takes me. I feel this strength in my body that I hate, like a, a constant itch. It drives me forward, This knowing that I'm meant to align with so much, do so much, though I don't know what yet. I spent my life bound in my own fear of just freeing myself. That I don't never want to be bound again, ever. I don't want to be trapped," she said, and the word was like a bullet to Denahi's chest. She saw the hurt flash and was sorry for this thing of her truth. "I make you feel trapped," he asked, and Malela shook her head. "No, Denahi. You make me feel whole. You make me feel grounded and kind and beautiful." It's so easy to be who I'm supposed to be and do what I'm supposed to do now that you're in my life. But right now, your expectations are just making me nervous, she said. Whether well, Nahi he may have been afraid that she would leave him, Walayla well, feared the hardening of his heart by her denial of his desires. She couldn't say if she wanted children, if she wanted to remain in Bobancha, if she wanted to be with him forever. Every day she was learning something new about herself that drastically changed who she'd been the day before. She was of an ever-changing spirit, and he knew that because every time he saw her, it was like meeting someone new. She made decisions in her healing that killed herself without dramatics, waking up daily as the phoenix with evolved philosophies, perceptions, and strengths. he found it hard to keep up, barely processing who she was before she was changing again. It was the price of loving those who are close to the end of their ancestral cycles, clearing the curses of their lineages, cleansing their spirits of generational karma. While well, Leila had a youthful energy about her, but beneath it was layered the iron will of ancients. She would change her course to freedom and ascension for no one. No human love of a degree heavy enough to weight her away from the love of Jamo's Thai, her first and most reciprocated standard of love. Danahi had been many things for her, but she only recognized those parts of him and cared for them so, because she was practiced in those love languages with her very creator who filled her up always like rain and drought. Danahi loved Walela, but he did not resonate with her freedom. He felt rooted to Bulbacha as the oak, where she was the hummingbird, migratory and passing as she pleased. She could not imagine life, uncoordinated, as she was prepared for. He did not match her for serenity and courage to fly. Falling scared him. He had the security of his home, his people, his purpose, and niche as a man, a warrior. He wanted to fit into that. He did not desire for the expanse of adventure. He was content with his cypress grounds. Just tell me this. If you have to choose between me and Minohood, what would you pick? His words were desperate and insecure and while Layla suddenly lost her interest in light steps over the eggshells, she looked at him with disbelief at what he suggested. How could you ask me that? It's just a question, Walayla. It is a manipulation, she said. Her wit, as always, was high and mighty. Her quiet and sacred security against the dark parts of love, which did not always make sense in their prodding. Walayla, please. I'm asking you if you love me enough to make a sacrifice. It's a simple yes or no. There's nothing simple about what you are asking of me, the to even imagine. Danahi, why are you so pressed to make me choose? To promise you this felty when you know where my loyalty is bound. I'm a child of Jamo's tie, and I would sooner see you for the last time than to step from his path to soothe your insecurities. Her voice hitched with force, and Danahi stood forcefully from his chair, his heart pounding with emotion, and his voice boomed. Then let it be that day. Since you so sure about it, Leila, how about we just in this right here, right now? You could have your freedom and I could go find somebody who grateful for the love I got to give. The night he said and Malila just looked at him. His voice was like thunder in her chest. She shook with adrenaline. He didn't know it, but when he stood the way he did, when he spoke he sent out such force that her fight or flight response was nearly switched. She'd been ashamed that she braced herself, remembering the traumas of a youth stained by sporadic violence. Her tears flowed without her consent, and Danahi's shoulders sunk. Her tears were a new sight to him. His own spirit became distressed at that cause and by his own frustration. He said her name softly. Walayla started to go to her, but she tensed her warning for him to stay where he was. I don't want to lose you, Danahi. I have no intention of hurting you. I know that pain in myself way too personally to ever be careless with your heart, reflection of my own. Well, Layla spoke her words with as much power as she could, contemplating her own sureties as she wiped her tears. Denahi he did not understand this was not about him, or oh, what he could and could not be for her. Well, Layla would not be reduced to an outdated notion of submission in love versus flexibility. She’d attained too much knowledge for that. The night he wanted her to submit to his ego's demand, though he may not have been conscious of that, he was trying to initiate a way of life embedded into his perceptions of their world as a man in their culture. While Layla was trying as best she knew how to help him see where she was coming from and where she was going, the old ways would not clasp down she who was becoming so new. She would not promise Nahi partnership until death, for she felt such a proposition was unreasonable. She would not lie to him and tell him trust was enough. She trusted Nahi to be not what he had been, not what he would be, but what he was. In any moment, men and women were subject to changing, and Nahi, in his desperation for control, could proclaim wholeheartedly that he would never change on her for the worst, but how could Walele invest in that? Why should she have? Those things were only words, promises to be broken. Deny his promises of devotion would not protect her garden or her temple, only his fist would. And if the day came where he decided to reserve the power of those fists from her defense or give it to another, what was she to do after placing her security totally in those hands? She did not know how she'd feel about Denahi in years to come, but she knew even in her youth, she would never indulge in pretending for him. She would never spare his ego at the expense of her heart, because what good would that do for either of them? Hypothetically, while Layla would turn her back on her tasks and rest forevermore in the embrace of Denahi's strength, his care, his providing, his love, his tribe, his home, his lead, his word, But what would come from the fading or the breaking of those things? Where would Walayla stand? What would she hold in her hands beyond the dust of regret? For power not cultivated in her youth where the energy was plenty. She could indulge his promises. But she knew if she left Minohood behind and chose him, he would have to be so perfect. He would need to be extraordinary and in compliment to the reciprocation of John Most High, but that she knew was impossible. She would grow to resent him for his, his inability to match these standards, and she would grow bitter in the trap of comfortability, stagnancy, neglect, and souring love. She refused to let his young insecurities sabotage the potential of her love for him, everlasting beyond the constraints of his limited imagination for what love was supposed to be. he could not see all this beyond the scope of his desire for her to fit into his visions, but she was powerful in her psychic intuitions as ever. She saw the storms coursing, and unlike so many before who did not have the sense to move out the way, she chose to shift clear without any hesitation. I offer you this, denying, and I pray you feel the sincerity of these words, and I really hope, she said, with tears streaming her cheeks. She didn't bother continuing her statement for fear of rambling, so she went on. For you, my door will always be open. And these hands will always touch you soft. My voice will always be kind and my eyes will remain true. I will not lie to you. I will not seek to hurt you. I offer grace for your freedom and embrace for your return. I will always love you. I will always be your friend. You understand that, Denahi? Before I am a woman bound to you, I am your friend. And if you no longer desired my body, I would be okay with that. If you wanted to love somebody else, I would be okay with that because I am content firstly and vastly with just the sound of your voice. If to heal you means to let you go, then I'll let you fly. But I'm also willing to ground myself for you in times of need or carry you on my wings in exodus. I will heal your wounds and mend your bones. I will pray over you, with you, for you. I know in my heart that I would die for you in battle raging. I would live to be an example for your endurance. If I got comfortable in darkness, I would manifest light for you if that darkness was too deep for you. And if you needed to see, Danahi, you asking me to choose between you and my future because you think I'm still deciding on whether or not you're worthy of me. But there's this feeling I get in my chest sometimes. This. Gravity, where I can't believe you really chose me. The way you look at me makes me feel like I can climb a mountain off your affection alone. But the Nahi, I will not subject myself to your ultimatum. I won't let you put me in that corner like I don't have the options or the power to walk over you if need be. And I prefer to leave the corner holding your hand, but either way, the corner is not where I will stay ever. Take me as I am. Have the sense to know something good in front of you and do like everyone else ultimately has to. Face that fear you got that said you can't trust my word when I've given you nothing but the actions proving their sincerity. Even now, I'm here now. Is that good enough for you? Or is love only sound to you if you can hold it down? The night he looked at her. Breathing deep, she'd said a lot and he didn't feel stable enough in his emotions to speak lest he mess things up where he could not fix them. The night he saw ferocity in Walayla's eyes. Okay, was all he said before he turned and walked heavy out her door. The night he did not come back. Walayla missed him much more than he was probably giving her credit for. She remained steadfast in her task, though. She spent months living as she had before the Nahi's knocked at her door. She tended her garden, she cleaned her house, she stimulated her commerce, she maintained her health. Her temple and the altar within were upheld by her own hands, dependent variables not determined by human favor. She locked herself into the cocoon of work, letting her hair sit free and wild, her attention to her physicality muted. There was only herself as a vessel, and God as an incentivizer of the sacred work of her beating. She felt always close to Jah Most High and her many ancestors and spiritual allies when she worked on her armor. She felt the peace did not belong to her but was a product of divine collaboration made possible by her openness to receive and her willingness to release. Her ancestors did not hesitate to grant her power knowing she was not burdened by the strife of hoarding for fear's sake. While Leila steadily completed her armor as a tapestry with small details packed with transmuted intention and symbolism, she did not rush herself letting time pass by in her creating, keeping her flow natural, unperformative. She did this work for herself. She did this work through the security of her faith, even when she felt obstacles which pulled at her fears of consequence. She was human after all, and was certainly affected by the Danahi's departure at the insistence of her boundary. She wondered sometimes if she made the right choice. Sometimes she got very low in her spirit because she could not tell if she was good. Forgiving herself, forgiving the Nahi up took ample effort, but she always made her way back to the sense of her immediate task, deciding that whatever would be would not be so until after this era of her life cycled through. She completed her piece undramatically, taking many days to rest. She woke one day to a letter which read, Dearest Walela, congratulations on your steady progressions through your trials and manifestation of your alma. In preparation for your initiation, go west until you can go west no more. There you will find rest. Return when you are ready. From Ja, your friends in high, low, near, and far places. What happened next? The scene has shifted back to the beginning, which is actually near the end, to the koi pond at the temple of Calafia, where Valela is sitting with the curious child, O. I came here. That's the end of the story. Valela said, and O's brow furrowed with dissatisfaction. That sounded so gross, y'all. Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> circle. Valela said, and O's brow furrowed with dissatisfaction that can't be the end what about the nahi you don't end up with the nahi at the end o asked and walayla looked at them with patient eyes o's youthful standard for a good story was for the characters to end up together issues resolved happily ever after Walela would not make up an ending for them which had not yet occurred and perhaps would not o concluded that walayla's recollection had come to an end It was a good story, O said in ethical critique, and Walayla smiled. I'm glad you liked it. Omina felt something vibrate in their pocket, removing a shell from inside. They placed it to their ear, and whatever they heard was calling them away from their wandering. I have to go home now, O said, and Walayla looked around to see if anyone was coming to usher the child out the temple. O didn't look to be waiting, though. They went into their other pocket and handed Walayla a starfish made of silver, thanking her for her story. Walayla pressed the starfish to her heart before Ul's body flashed light and they transformed into a blue gray kingfisher, glancing once at Walayla before spreading their wings and flying through and out the temple. The sun descended toward the western horizon steadily on a day breezed cool and warmed just enough the land came alive with anticipation preened with active spirit from across the land the tribes and ethnicities prepared themselves to participate in a long-awaited ceremony they walked in step with dragonflies and butterflies journeying to a shared destination the birds flew creatures crawled bees buzzed to the site of congregation a journeyed from her garden to Hekama took a seldom walk in the light of day. Even Nahini flew as an eagle to the place. Bastet ventured and Cleopatra and Hekama strode. Oshun and Omina arrived in their high fashion. From a distant land, Walela's teachers from the house of Cobra also came in attendance. Big Chief and Katlaha rolled up in her sports car. and angel came eager to witness the completion of Walela's work through her tutelage. They all gathered in the meadow to the east, flowered with primrose and clovers and bordered by oaks, cypresses, sycamores, and pines. Honeybees were all about as the falling sun painted everything splendid and gold. There was a shrine at the center of the field, dimly lit within. There was where Leila knelt before an altar inside. She lit incense with care and placed it before bowing her head and prayer. She bubbles with nerves. She took a deep breath, knowing her life would be forever changed beyond this moment. She stood and stepped out of the shrine and into the field in full view of the gathering. The attendants of her initiation had laid out blankets and were picnicking as they waited. They all looked up, their jaws dropping and smiles flashing at the sight of Walayla fresh and young at the golden hour. Her hair had been intricately styled into a circular mantle, her long braids ended with green beads, her armor was white, in honor of it being her first suit of such kind. It was beaded and emblemed with hummingbirds and various other symbols. Filled with every inch by filled in every inch by the energy of her ancestors' love and her love to herself, she beamed with pride, knowing herself to finally look how she was feeling on the inside. Her attire did not feel like a costume. It was like her true skin. She felt that if she passed on to the spiritual realm and had to take on that current form, she would be all right with it. Her armor felt like security all over. Above her, swallows danced in the air and silver kites passed by. She walked to take a seat amongst her people, pulling out a piece of paper she'd written on that morning. She looked at the words, satisfied to speak truth. These years have been monumental, to say the least. I was once so lost, but now I'm founded. I have found such love around me a reflection of the love I have for myself. I thank you both, simply and profoundly, for kindness, humanity, patience, care, wisdom, and endurance. Thank you for caring for me beyond what I've even known to care for myself. Thank you for being my home, Walela said, and Her words were received. A moment later, there was a gust of breeze which coursed past the trees, over the meadow grass, and swirled around Walayla. Three butterflies, monarchs, appeared and fluttered around her. Walayla watched in marvel as the insects came to line up in a row of three in front of her before their forms flashed light and they transformed. Left and right of center stood two women in black, white and orange armor, their faces helmed. They were Mino which Walayla had never seen regal looking and fierce. At their center stood a figure who stunned Walayla with her beauty. She was fair of face and soft in her eyes beauty marked as Oshun with whom she said significant likeness to. She wore a suit of armor marked as the patterns of the butterfly with a crowned mantle of gold jewels and feathers at her head. From all around the meadow, the butterflies congregated to be near her, fluttering all around as the gathered Mino and Shuja inclined their heads. From Ja Walela. the women carried a carved chest, and she gestured for Walela to sit with her. While and this butterfly woman sat, her guards remained standing as everyone watched on with excitement. From Ja. Walela well, did not have her name. The Mino smiled. Call me Nana, she said. Nana placed down the chest and opened it, exposing several pieces wrapped in fine purple silk. She took them out and laid them all neatly before Walela. Her spirit thrummed at the sight of her gold pieces, markers of her rites of passage completed. Nana spoke. Gold is our conduit of choice because it is best at absorbing spiritual energy and storing it. Gold is dense, rich. It stores energy and allows us to pass it down to where it is as with silver, to ward off demonic frequency. These pieces forged in the fire of the phoenixes may be worn by you and delivered unto your children, perhaps, or other loved ones, and may continue to travel. As you wear them, they absorb your strength, your prayers, your intentions, your knowledge, your power. Cherish these for as long as you live, and let them go with ease when and if Jah calls you to do so. Nana said, raising firstly the set of golden hoop earrings, monogrammed with hummingbirds, magnolias, and Malela's name. She placed them in her ears, and Nana said, these." and your ears will forever absorb truth and detect the frequency of spoken lies. Next was the armband. Wear this on your spit arm. May your grip be steadfast and your mark always true. Then the rings. There was an assortment of them, each gifted from a teacher, a friend, or a patron. She allowed Nana to place each one. May your fingers heal soft and your fist strike strong. Next was the waist circlet. Weather's at your sacrum, protect the physical and metaphysical womb, protect your vessel of physical and metaphysical creation. Then Nana lifted a golden dagger laid with white and green stone and jewels. Walela drew it from its sheath, sharp as a whistle and clean like sunlight, at her will it would transform into a full-length spear, a weapon so powerful it had taken all those years to earn. Finally, Nana placed the necklace of a winged Ankh, foremost symbol of the Mino order, around Walela's neck. Whether Ankh to protect your heart, Nana said, and Walela smiled, grateful to be passing through this graduation finally. Nana concluded her gifting, leaning forward to kiss Walela softly on the cheek before she stood, transformed as her two gods, and flew off as a butterfly, quiet as she'd never been there at all. While Layla stood and received the embrace of her people, talking and laughing, accepting and feeling the energy of congratulations, she was so full. The Mino angel was just admiring her suit when while Layla looked to the edge of the meadow to see eyes she'd missed very much. She'd silently prayed but had not dared to hope that Danahi would come but to her hearts in their disbelief that he was, dressed in his usual simplicity. While Layla looked to her people and was assured that it was okay for her to go, she walked on, and no one made a scene or any awkward remarks about her crossing over the field to stand before Denahi. He looked her over, registering her changes as always. She was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen beautiful for her power and her, pers- her perseverance to prioritize her well-being as much as it had frustrated him before. He had lots of time to think on her last words to him and had summoned much courage to come here in this way. He asked her if they could talk and Walela indulged him and they walked all the way to the green banks of a canal near a bridge that crossed it. Walela was not standoffish. She was not cruel or spiteful. Her stride was as easy as ever, slow with his. She was in no rush to speak. It had been so long since she'd been close to him. She remained in that, content in the quiet until he did speak. Thank you, he said, and Malayla glanced at him. For what? For being kind, for letting me in, for never judging me, he said, and Malayla shrugged. I never judge you, or anybody for that matter. I got enough of my own darkness to cleanse, she said, and the night he asked if she was angry at him. I was never angry at you. I was a little sad that you were hurt. I had to get used to you not being around, and that was hard for a while. But no, not angry. We all have to process things in our own time. But now he stopped, and she stopped too as he shook his head. How are you so okay with everything, he asked. He'd been so hurt before by the idea that she didn't need him. Now in an odd twist, he was grateful for her independence of him, grateful because it made it so easy for her to receive him after all this time of distance. He was grateful that she was not the type to punish others in her pain. He did not know if he could take such wrath from her. With everyone else, he was Denaki, Fist, Shuja, and Chief Son of Wolf's Blood. With Walela, he was so fragile. It made him always nervous. Walela answered him, It's not as natural to me as you might think. But through a lot of practice, I just work on accepting everything for what it is as far as i'm concerned there's me there's god and the vastness of my lack of control and the degrees of difference i don't aspire for perfection in myself so i don't seek it from other people because it's not realistic i cross through my emotions like everybody but i prefer to settle into the ease of forgiveness to forgive as in give it all to job most high I don't consent to carrying the burdens which are not mine to bear. People will love me. People may hate me. People will support me. People may neglect. People will do right by me. Others may betray me or fall below the height of my expectations, but it's okay. I choose to not let any of it hurt me. The thing that kept me subdued under my old masters was my inability to take care of myself. Things are different now. I'm keeping my own temple with my own hands. I don't have to hate or resent anybody because I know well to not depend on anything or anyone before our Creator. When I'm hurt, like how you hurt me, there's a sting, there's contemplation, the pull of paranoia and doubt, all of that. But When I lay my head down at night, I make sure that me and God are on the same page, that I know what's of consequence. I love you, and you love me, and as simple as we may want that to be, it's not. Maybe it will never be. I'm good with that, too, because at least I know what's here, she said, putting her hand to her heart, then placing her palm against the Nahi's chest. What's here? I feel that, even from behind the veil of your darkness and the weight of my own. I told you. Whether you want me or not in that way, I will always be your friend this way. Not even just because it's the moral thing to do, but because I just really prefer that lifestyle. I'm calm and cool and prioritizing myself, love. Valila paused, looking up at nahim Do you love yourself? She asked him, and the question halted him. He'd never been asked that. He never asked it of himself while Layla touched his face. You don't have to answer it now. Not for me. Answer it for yourself in your own time, okay? In the meantime, I'll be around, not necessarily waiting on you to make up your mind, but open to give you what you give me space to give, she said. And then now he leaned into the press of her hand. I came here to tell you sorry, oh that's the Nahi's nice voice. <laughs> I came here to tell you in case I never get to tell you again. I love you, Walela. And I thank you for being you. Whatever you need, I got you always, he said, and Walayla smiled, believing him to be true, happy that she chose to always be soft with his heart. Thankful that she had the power in the room in herself to do so. Well, Layla had to let go. Well, Layla had to let go. She had enough to let go of everything, if only Jah commanded it, always free falling, flying. I know, she told them. I know. The Nahi and Walela circled back to the meadow and enjoyed the rest of the daylight in honor of Walela's passing into Minohood. Walayla looked up at the painted sky and thought to herself if this was all there was, she could accept that. If there was far more to be gained than she could imagine, she could accept that as well. It was a day which could have been the very last of her life or the dawning start. Resting her head against the Nahi's shoulder, Thumbing the arc at her chest, she smiled serenely, for serenity was her most cherished power. She had found power to accept the things she could not change, courage to change what she could, and the wisdom to know the difference. All thanks given to Jah Most High. The night of a full moon arrived with a quiet luminescence. While Layla felt the buzz of power in her blood, the quickening of her spirit, she spent most of the day praying at her altar in preparation for the task to face after the sunset. She dressed herself slowly and ritualistically in her armor and left home carrying her spear, journeying to a destination she'd long shied away from beneath the light of the moon, which seemed to blaze through the haze of an otherwise clouded sky. While Layla stepped across the barren land where the temple of her old masters stood, to her left stepped a white she-wolf with golden eyes, to her right a jaguar with black fur, sheening indigo in the moonlight. The wolf's ears twitched and the jaguar's tail flicked, the songs of cicadas and crickets heavy in the night air while Layla stepped forward, taking in a deep breath before she placed her palm against the dry soil. She closed her eyes, and a vision pulsed through her like a dream of the very temple, but different, lush and green, a home of animals and people, a place for growing things and spiritual pilgrimage and prayer. She opened her eyes, and the vision receded before she raised her palm from the soil. Her Mino sisters came to stand beside her, Katlaha, no longer in her shape of a wolf, and Omina no longer as a jaguar. They supported Walela at her precipice of initiation. The three of them were each equipped with tools of power. Katlaha carried bundled sage, Walela carried incense and her rosary beads, and Omina held a glass of vial of sacred water. They began to walk, each behind the other, with a reasonable space between them. They walked around the temple, Omina at the front, shaking sacred water and uttering soft-toned prayers of high power, their words quiet, so there was no need to scream or growl the force of truth. Cutlaha whispered sage, singing soft sounds, songs of ritual passed down to her by her mother and father. While Leila twirled incense, and with the other hand thumbed the cycling of her rosary beads. In this way, they circled the perimeter of the temple's base, each entering their own trances, their senses of time past, muted. They walked like this until Valela reached the end of her Hail Marys. They paused at the front of the temple, the smell of sage and frankincense now permeating the air. The night was suddenly quiet, the cicadas and cricket song stilled. They waited for a moment, until the cry of a screech owl pierced the silence from the surrounding forest, and they all turned to the sound as one before turning back to face the temple. Appeared suddenly during that turn of attention were the monsters of Walela's near past. They stood as foul as she'd ever seen them. Without her presence in the temple, They'd lost access to the energy they'd spent a lifetime draining from her to make themselves appear opulent. In that moment, they looked only rancid and decaying to her, their clothes faded and torn, their jewels rendered rhinestones, their silks turned to sheer and cheap fabric. Their faces were twisted, and their maws fanged. eyes red, green, and yellow. They used darkness armed with various weapons of destruction. Front and center stood Viliabian with a long and slender sword in his vile and vessel-bulged hand. The demons were already clearly agitated, burning by the lash of Amina's sacred water, lungs squeezed by the smoke of incense and sage, their ears ached by the quiet power of three Mino praying in tandem. "'Wretched witches,' Viliabian spat out. "'You are out of line,' he said." And Walea looked at him, mighty and white, before his barren rod. We've come to reclaim the temple, Villiabyan, she said, and the demons twitched at the utterance of his name. He bared his fangs in a twisted, grimacing and mocking smile. It seems you think you can, he said. It will take more than smoke and water to take us away from what is ours, by the rites of blood and ritual. "'The temple belongs to you no more than the land it stands on. "'This temple is for my people, and I'll return it to them,' "'Walela said, and Viliabian laughed his amusement. "'Sweet Valela, my most spoiled and treacherous pet,' "'Viliabian said with contempt. "'Your people were barbarians without the proper intellect "'or civility to claim space.' They had no sense of how to cultivate the riches of this swamp. Left to their devices, it would have remained nothing more than a festering bucket for mosquitoes and the crawling of crawfish. His words were bitter with projection, tinged by his own fears, pressed into him by the cold of the world he'd fled long ago. His kind was so traumatized by poverty... They were willing to sell their souls and become monsters to escape it through what they imagined was salvation, false and wicked power and destruction. Valela raised her hand in gesture to their surroundings, where the trees stood leafless, the ground without fresh grass, the clouds noxious. And is this the height of your civilization? Our swamp's destruction in exchange for your inevitable ruin? Valela asked. The old masters were incapable of growing anything. They did not heal. They did not attract. They only consumed and destroyed in a constant cycle of denial for their inability to embody the power they proclaimed. Viliabian hissed his displeasure at her challenge. Arrogant child, he said. Have you become so removed in your own role in our ownership of this space? It was, after all. By the blood of your hand that we sealed our roof, he said. And Walela asked, what are you talking about? Have you never wondered how you came to be with us, Walayla? Have you never wondered as to the circumstances of our ownership of you? He claimed ownership in the present tense. And Walela tensed, looking to Kalaha and Omina for answers that were not theirs to give. You betrayed your people, just as you betrayed us, loyal to no one at all. Weak-willed and spirited, it was you who transferred this space into our possession. Don't you remember? His words were laced like venom, and Walayla began to tremble with the coursing of recollection long subdued of visions of a life long past. The cycle of a lifetime flashed before her mind's eyes at Viliabian's triggering she saw the temple once more, and a woman with her face who cared for it, keeping the gardens, attending the animals, serving visitors, honoring the spirits, shamans, and wise ones who came and went. She saw the suffering of her people, the seeking of refuge at the temple, the violence imposed and incentivized by their oppressors, the spread of sickness, terrible dying, in despair and confusion. Valela's past self gave her enemies access to her language, access to her people, access to the temple. She did so because she imagined they would have mercy, that they would steal their abuse. They asked for the temple, said they would spare her people in exchange. She chose her people and signed over the temple with blood, but true to their darkness, the old masters did not keep their promises. The temple keeper lost everything and in her sorrow settled into the grasp of the old masters because at least it let her remain on the land in which she was born with quiet and forgotten hope of reclamation. Valena returned from her visions, shaken by the intensity of them. Viliabion cackled manically, speaking down at her. She could swear the demon was growing and that she was shrinking. Foolish savage, don't you understand? You belong to me. Your people belong to me. This land belongs to my kind. You are not the first to come here in overestimated confidence. Time and time again, we have reminded you primitive sun worshippers of your place. He raised his blade for Walila to see and inhaled against the dark steel. The blood of many Nino and Shuja, full hearty in their pursuit of victory, has coated this sword their very bones lie beneath your feet, unburied, unburned, dishonored. Billy Abion spoke with terrible glee and venom, laughing still. You think you are different. You think you are special. You are nothing. Just a stupid woman. Cannot accept that she has lost. Give up, girl. Save me the trouble of the mess your tattered frame will make at the foot of my temple. He said, and... Walayla felt the coursing of rage rising from her chest, the heat of emotion. Tears streamed her cheeks, for she knew his words to ring with the truth of the past. It was indeed by her own mistakes that the temple had been lost. Walayla. The sound of Omina's voice turned her away from Billy Abian's poison. She looked at Omina, fearing the reflection of her own judgments from within, but they weren't there. Omina's eyes were without shock, no accusation or pity them. Valela found the same stillness in Kalaha's expression. What shocked her was long-held knowledge to them, for these tales were told to them as children. From the start, they'd known who Valela was, even when she hadn't. Omina told Valela simply, breathe. Walela focused on Omina's eyes, turning out the press of Iliabian, still speaking his darknesses, laughing as the others in his company. Walela breathed, keeping her rage at bay, remaining steady, choosing calm ferocity over wrathful anger. Omina said to her, The past is the past. What is done is done. A version of you made a mistake and was not strong or wise enough to amend it then. But Walela, you are not as before. Your spirit and body have been alchemized. You are new. You are one with Jah. You are Mino, Omina said before glancing up at the moon, grazing their eyes over the old masters, then back to Walela. You've been thoroughly prepared for this. It's just a matter of belief now. Reclaim your temple, Omina said, and Walayla breathed in their words, feeling them at her core. Her hands stopped shaking and her guilt dissipated. She turned to meet Viliabian's glare. His words were nothing more than empty sound and had no more power over Walela than what she allowed them to. I offer you the chance now to exit this temple in peace. Save me the trouble of the mess. The cockiness flew from his eyes, his smile flatlined at Waléla's quick mockery of his own taunting. He gripped the handle of his rapier, and his comrades drew their own swords and spears. It is ours, through the spilling of your blood. We shall spill it again if it is what you wish, he said. And Walayla drew her dagger from its sheath and wielded its transformation into a spear a foot taller than she. The golden weapon buzzed with life. To her left, Katlaha returned to her wolf form, and to her right, Omina drew a pair of pearl ivory fans laid at the handles with sapphire and silver sacred animals. She splayed the fans out and shifted to a guarded stance while Layla raised her spear in challenge. Viliabian did not hesitate, his form shifting ahead in a blur of speed. In an instant, he was on Walela, bringing his sword, slicing at her throat. She moved quick, though, dodging and swinging her own spear, their dance to the death beginning. The other old masters moved in as well, intending to converge on Walela. They were held back, though, by the pierce of Katlaha's teeth and the wide slicing of Omina's fans, edged sharp like the blades of a sword. The three Mino were outnumbered but far from outmatched, the three of them together moving with the ferocity of a hurricane. The old masters registered that these three were not as opponents they faced before. They were strong, ferocious, fearless. The old masters found there was a heavy price to be paid for attacking these daughters of Job Most High, and they struggled against them. Walela was locked in her combat with Villiabian as powerful as the other nine masters in one. She pressed Walela hard. He was not an easy opponent, and she felt herself having to work against the quickness of his blade and his demonic strength, but she minded her rage, which he would only feed on otherwise. She remained calm and serene in her deflections and attacks until finally he made the slightest misstep, and she spun her spear as her body and twirled it from the far end to cut him viciously with the blade. Viliabian screamed at the fire burn of the cut, and he jolted back, clutching his wound. The old ones stood in recuperation, heaving their exhaustion, each trying to hide behind the other, all of them cowardly in the face of their underestimated challenges. Walela, Katlaha, and Omina came together, readying their forms in defense. It was then that they heard a sound Walela knew, but had not heard in a long time. It was that of engines revving, tires rolling, louder in approach of the temple. They braced themselves as high sitting trucks and motorbikes rolled into the temple grounds, followed by the four legged pursuit of wild beasts. Out the trucks stepped the muscle bound pig men, hogs, and boars, armed with their weapons. At their heels were the humanoid catcher hound dogs and other foul creatures which walked as men but were furred, scaled, or exoskeletoned as animals. They were changed ones, cursed beings who committed sins in submission to their primal instincts of fear, and so were charged to live as the beasts they'd reduced themselves to in human life. They rushed in, rancid, rabid, and ravenous at the old master's beckoning. While Layla breathed deep as she, Katlaha, and Omina were surrounded by a horde of enemies, smelling of flea-filled and sty. The bays of hounds and the squeals and grunts of pigs resounded, and Billy Abyan smiled through the pain of Walayla's spear cut. You've learned to bite back, he told Walayla, and just like a dog, the hand you bite which feeds you will be the same to put you down. Did you truly think it would be so easy, he asked, and Walayla no longer paid his words mind. Her spearhead tasted the tinge of the blood of her enemies and then hummed for more. She looked around at the surrounding forces of evil and was ever serene. She was not afraid of these beasts, unworthy of her consideration beyond what was necessary to calculate their defeat. Kill them, Filiabion growled out and their enemies rushed in. The real fight began then and there was no ease found between either side. The Mino fought hard and fierce, but were getting worn out. The changed ones were numerous, but secreted fear at the force of the Mino's blows, their quickness more than most could register. Many of them fell before Walela felt the need to catch her breath. Her training had prepared her, though, and she entered a new level of force, her body going into its trance of unsubdued energy, moving of its own accord. Her spear made work of these demons whose eyes flashed with fear at their writhing demise. Eventually, the changed ones formed a circle around the Mino who stood closed and guarded, catching their breaths. Their enemies kept them locked in, but none of them had the courage to initiate attack. Standing over their fallen brethren, limp and bloodied across the barren soil, Viliabian twitched further with agitation at Walayla's insistence in battle. She looked at him defiantly, willing to die for this, as her past life was not. She was a warrior through and through, her will strong, her spirit sharp. Viliabian found himself trapped by Valela's courage, and he knew if he was to secure his prize of conquer, he would have to take another measure, desperate, costly. But his pride would not see the temple forfeited willingly. He called on his kind to join hands, and they began to utter words in a foul language, twisted in harsh syllables. that made Valela's skin crawl. Following their incantations, Villabian drew his sword and gestured to the mass of minions. One of his fellows stepped to the crowd and grabbed one of the pigmen by his armor vest, the old master's size deceptive to their strength, which pulled the pig to the ground as they dragged them struggling and squealing to the feet of Villabian who wasted no time in raising his sword and plunging it into the body of the pigman who squealed at his own slaughter. His dark blood seeped into the ground, and Viliabian and the others cut their own hands and let their fluids seep into the ground. While Layla watched them, breathing in her brace for whatever they were calling forward, a moment passed, and then the earth shook. There was a pounding sound and a heavy vibration from beneath the ground. Something big was trying to come out. The pounding intensified until finally a large hand as big as Waléla, burst through the earth, sending up dust and the tumble of chunks of earth. There was a roaring squeal of rage as the creature pulled itself up from the bowels of the earth, turning up more dust as it climbed, smelling of swine filth. It stood with stomping force, and Walayla heard the huffing of hot breath as the dust began to settle, revealing the form of a giant, monstrous form figure I'm sorry its body was covered in brown fur and its arms and legs were shaped and muscled as a burly man mm-hmm. its head was that of a rage eyed boar with large tusks protruding from beneath its snout it opened its vile maw roared a squealing scream at them it wore armor like those in books where Layla had read in Cleopatra's tutelage from a long fallen empire and its meaty hand was an axe as large as a small tree Kalaha changed her form, standing and drawing her own spear, for her wolf's teeth would not bring such a demon down. The three vino braced themselves as the boar attacked, swinging his axe with terrible speed. They They could do barely more than dodge, shifting here and there to slice the beast's legs but he was too fast, too strong for them to land a definite hit anywhere vital. At one point, Omina gained some distance, and with a flick of their fans summoned a strong gust of wind, which pressed against the boar, almost knocking it off its feet. But the beast was a skilled warrior, and he only shifted his stance to accommodate the momentum he used to swing his axe, which Walela just barely moved out the way of. The Mino regrouped, and the boar adjusted his own ready stance. There was a moment of stillness, and the Mino looked at each other, understanding this may have been a battle they did not make out alive, deciding as one to die honorably, fighting to the last breath if necessary. Submission was not an option. They knew their soul's destination regardless. They were tensing their muscles for springing, When a sound boomed thunder, so forceful it shook the temple and the ground at their feet. Lightning flashed, and in quick succession the thunder clapped again. Clouds swirled, thick with the humidity of a reserved rain. Valela's enemies grew agitated, sensing the static of approaching power. Villavion shook with a quiet fear, frustrated that his attempts to slaughter the Mino had only grown their courage in the face of physical demise and had thus earned them divine aid in their battle. A patch of clouds swirled over the boar monster, flashing light as thunder clapped. The brute beast barely had time to look up, let alone get out the way. As the clouds burst with flashing light, white hot and blue tinged, a torrent of lightning, thick as an oak's trunk, coursed down in the blink of an eye, illuminating the space and sending the changemen, scattering further back, baying and wailing in their fear. The lightning coursed and the boar monster squealed in agony as his body was burst apart from the force of the lightning, his limbs scattering across the ground, one of his grieved forearms landing just at Walayla's feet. Filiabian screamed his frustration at the demise of the creature summoned by his own blood. The turn of lightning dissipated the boar no more. All that remained was the soot stain of the incineration. Where he'd been was a woman, familiar to Walela, respected by Kalaha, and loved as godmother by Omina. Oya. Queen of the thunder boom and lightning rain, pusher of the hurricane and rager of the storm, stood in a suit of ivory bone armor. There was a scarf, flowing as if caused by its own personal current of soft wind around her back, resting at the crooks of her arms. The fabric was shimmering with starlight crystal glitter, and it coursed like dark water, different hues of indigo swirling. Oya spoke directly to Viliabian, Tisking mockery a boar of Mars, you must be truly desperate to have taken on such an expense. Oya laughed coolly. <laughs> certainly, she said, kicking away a lingering finger of the boar monster on the ground. Wasted. Billy Abion hissed at her taunting, but there was nothing he could do. He did not dare speak to this being of power. Oya looked over him in his horde, and she spoke, relishing every syllable for the energy of a cycle coursing through transition. This moment was monumental, as the priestess of this ancient site had finally found her courage. Nothing would ever be the same. Oya smiled for change. You came here. You raped, pillaged, desecrated, hid, undermined disrespected and laid this land and its people to ruin you've tainted this ancient ecosystem and disrupted the balance of nature you have taken lives but not seen to honor them in burial no shrines, no mention or note of your carnage you have fattened yourself up in the absence of repentance for your sins thinking yourself superior for your mere centuries long hold on this sacred ancient land Land which festers in your hold, Viyavyyan, did you really think the dead would not return to demand their reparation? Oya oh, yeah, laughed still, spreading her arms, raising her palms. In that instance Walela felt a familiar static, a chill up her spine. All around, manifesting the smoke wisp forms of ancestral spirits, the old chiefs, the fallen warriors, the wise women, the whole-spirited shamans, each of them standing in armor with their weapons drawn. Their blue light cast a stark glow over the enemies, buried in a circle from access to Walela and her sisters. You have evoked the wrath of the dead. You have challenged the strength of their living incarnations. Now there is no turning back, no grace for surrender. Oya proclaimed, taking her scarf and positioning it in her hand as a whip. You may run, escape to lick your wounds in the shadows of your shame if you are so lucky. Otherwise, summon your courage. Manifest what other dignity still lies in your souls, from when you yourselves were once men and women still, and face me fighting. I take no pleasure in cutting down a cowering enemy, but as it stands, I will do as I must. Oya's scoffed pulsed with the flow of electricity from her fist to its tip. There was only a moment of stillness, calm. Before the release of Oya’s storm, she whirled her scarf in slicing, cutting down multiple old masters in a single strike. At once, the ancestral spirits charged their otherwise transparent and air-like forms, rendered physical against the flesh of their enemies, the flesh of their enemies. Their enemies were obliterated or sent into scattering retreat into the shadows of the swamp, all except Viyayan. "'cornered between Oya and the wall of the temple. "'Walela,' Oya called, "'come forward and conduct your exorcism.' "'Walela moved ahead at Oya's summoning. "'Oya looked at her with still eyes, moving out her way. "'Walela stood before Williabian "'and looked down at his quivering form. "'He was a mess, writhing and twitching like a rabid dog who is cornered. "'He clung to the edge of the temple.' trying to sink himself into it trying to evaporate into smoke and disappear but his powers were useless bound in by walela kalaha and omina's initial cleansing which served to draw spirits out but also to lock them in for confrontation walela spoke calmly but sternly vilyavian demon of infiltration and occupation I, Waléla, Mino of the temple, grower of the gardens, queen of hummingbirds, daughter of Borbancha, command you to leave these grounds. I send you off, even now, in peace, for I don't wish to take the blade of my spear with the blood of one so unworthy. But know this, if you return, as you did before, I will sense you and I will draw you out, and if I must... While Layla pressed her spear to his chest. I will plunge my spear into the blackness of your heart and leave your corpse to rot at this temple's entrance as one into any other demons foolish enough to mistake me again. Go by the will of Jah Most High. At that, Billy Viliabian's form twisted and morphed into black smoke and he shifted on the wind beyond the temple. While Layla breathed her victory and Oya looked her over, nodding. Not bad, she said, before turning to her godchild and Kalaha. I will remember your courage here today, Oya said, and Kalaha and Omina bowed their respects. From Jah. At their words, the clouds boomed with thunder, and Oya looked up at the sky. That's not me, she said, and the rain began to pour, washing the temple ground with cool showers. Walila well, watched as the land began to change in an instant. The corpses were absorbed into the ground and the soil blackened before spurting green grass. The temple's exterior was washed of dirt and vines until it stood, glowing in ivory as the pale moon. The trees sprouted leaves again and the cicadas and crickets continued their songs at the conclusion of the rain. Walela well, marveled at the beauty of this place where she'd lived but had never seen in such vibrancy. She thanked Oya, Umina, and Talaha and asked to be left alone to embrace the temple. They obliged her and she entered the space, clean for once, and she set to burning incense throughout. She noticed the fluttering of something out the corner of her eye and looked. It was a moth, white with black spots. She reached forward and it flew away, exiting the temple, and Walila followed, seeing a marvel phenomenon. Hundreds, thousands of moths were flying and perching on the walls of the temple all around. Walela interpreted them in the same light as their cousins, butterflies, for symbols of metamorphosis. She breathed in deep, proud of this reality. She went to her home after praying before her altar, leaving written notes of thanks and reflection. She was Mino. She was Walela. She was home. And she was whole, all praise offered to Jah Most High. And that is the end of our episode and the first section of the Mino Diaries anthology. Um, Did I? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I read the title of it. So the title of episode seven is also the title of the section of the anthology as a whole, the first seven episodes. And you can look at this section of episodes as sort of like a prequel kind of thing, um, preparing us for what is to come next in the story. So yeah, hope y'all enjoy it. Make sure that you follow Holy 777 on Spotify or Anchor, um, Instagram and stuff. My YouTube popping now. I got like cute videos and stuff. And you can go to the link tree, commission. Uh, you know, I'm about to start getting into some stuff. And yeah. So yeah, thank you everybody who listened. Thank you to my friends and my family who make writing these things and doing this work so possible. Thank you to my community. And I just hope y'all all be blessed. And talk to y'all later. Oh, I forgot. It ain't all the way over yet. If you want to, if you want to stay for that long, there is a last song. So, that scene where they're in the club and Nesta is performing. That song is a real song that I have. And I sang it a little bit. It ain't super perfect, but I had to just record it and let it go. Because I kept trying to make it perfect. And I kept, you know, it just too much. Like... Um, It just is what it is So I hope y'all like that too It's called Serenity And that's gonna play right after this